Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Chapter 2. Wedding Day. June 2002. Fucking Saturday fucking morning, she thought. Laura had been called into work on a Saturday, about which she was more than furious, and hung over. She had no more than fallen out of bed, couldn't remember any salient details of her shower or dressing, and had all but fainted on the tube. And now here she was, tinkering on the keyboard, trying to focus on sets of numbers on the computer screen that some other sod had failed to put in the right boxes. This wasn't law, she thought. This wasn't what she'd studied for. It was just busy work, entry-level stuff. And besides, it was Saturday, bloody, morning. She was supposed to be asleep. She planted her hands against the edge of the desk and extended her arms to wheel herself backwards, then stood and ambled towards the kitchen area. Cazar, Apregio, Roma, she said, shuffling through plastic coffee pods, reading their spurious-sounding names aloud. Vivalto... Lungo? Thankfully, there was nobody there to hear her rambles. She settled on the Vivalto Lungo because the pod was a pleasing shade of blue, slotted it into the machine and pushed the latte button. At that moment, the office door buzzer fired out its horrendous call, causing her to jump so high that her muscles nearly tore themselves away from her bones. Jesus, fuck! She squealed. Fucking Christ, fuck! She moved to the intercom and lifted the receiver to her ear. Yeah, hi, flowers. The grainy black and white screen flickered into life, showing a distorted fisheye image of a behatted man holding a huge bouquet of roses. Yeah, yeah, okay. She buzzed the guy in and headed past the empty reception and towards the stairs, rubbing the back of her hand against her head as if it would silence the pangs. This flower guy was taking her away from the Vivaltalungo, and that was a bad thing. He vaulted up the stairs and handed her the flowers in a hurry. They came up well over her face and smothered her with their scent, 
and before she knew it, the delivery guy had said a distant, cheers, and was gone, leaving Laura alone again. She dropped the bouquet onto the reception desk and went back to the coffee machine. She couldn't be dealing with much of anything until she had some caffeine vying for space in her veins. It was only on her way out of the building, at around 2pm, that she even remembered the exchange had happened. She wondered if she'd still been drunk when she'd accepted the bouquet, and concluded that it was quite possible since the afternoon had brought on a comparably more painful kind of sober. At any rate, she stopped at the front desk again and ran a finger through the petals, then down the stalk and over some of the thorns, and then on further to the tiny card affixed to the plastic wrapping. There were probably four Cass, she thought, probably Cass's perfect bloody boyfriend, leaving her some perfect bloody flowers for when she arrived on Monday. Gingerly, she prized the two halves of the card apart with thumb and forefinger to read the upside-down words. But they weren't for Cass. The card had her name on it. What do you mean it's got your name on it? Tom asked. He sounded as sluggish as she felt and the afternoon traffic on High Holborn made it difficult for either one to hear the other. I mean, the card had my name on it. It says Laura. Thinking of you on our big day, love, JL. Who's JL? Laura put the flowers under her arm and jabbed the ball of her free palm into her eyeball. Absolutely no idea. Are you sure they're for you? Tom said. Well, there's no one else called Laura who works here. And I was the only one in, and... Hang on. <laughs> Is it that hard for you to believe that they would be for me? I'm not that bad. Well, I mean, unless you've been keeping secrets from me, I don't know who'd be sending you flowers. Last time you had a date, David Bowie was number one. Laura told Tom that he was a dick, and that she would be home soon, and that she was more than a little bit freaked out. And, though she put the flowers in pride of place in a vase upon her arrival at their flat, not wanting to waste them, she thought nothing more of them until later in the following week. It was Thursday, and it was lunchtime. She strolled from the office to the nearby Pret, had jostled for position in the freeform queue, and was eating the fruits of her trek on the way back. She could rarely get to the office before the hangar took over, and it wasn't uncommon for her to have eaten her entire lunch by the time she got back to reception. It was sunny, so she wanted to avoid going straight back. She walked and ate her way towards Red Lion Square and found a free bench, where she sat quite happily for a while, just watching everything happen around her. The people of central London were fast and young and exciting to look at. They all seemed like an important part of something. There was a feeling that if she were to pluck any one of them from existence, the wheels of the whole country would grind to a halt. A suited woman dashed through the park with a coffee cup, near sprinting on low heels, Two guys who Laura guessed were designers or architect shared a deep conversation as they walked through a pace. One had a large portfolio under his arm, the weight and size of which he was struggling with, though he was trying not to show it. Aside from those sat on its dozen or so benches, the park was so active, was such a busy cut-through, that it made anyone not moving stand out. And that was how she saw him, a man standing by the gate on the far side of the park, staring at her, leering. She locked eyes with him for only a moment, and then he tore away, clearly startled at her having spotted him, 
He spun on his heels and was gone from sight in less than a second, but he had been looking right at her, no doubt about it. Only, who was he? And why was he staring? He looked familiar. His visage had sparked against some old memory, but it was muddled, drowned out by the panic. Then it all locked into place. She knew who he was. It was the guy she'd had that disastrous date with those years back. That guy from the bad date. He'd grown a thicker beard and his hair was longer, but it was definitely him. But when Aiden was that? Two years ago? Maybe longer? She felt a prickly heat rise up from her neck, blotching her skin. Shit. The flowers, she thought. They were from him. From James L. James something or other. Fear gripped her. She was being stalked. She pulled her phone from her pocket and tried to call Tom, pushing the wrong buttons in a fluster and ending up nowhere. One deep breath later and she was able to make the call. It rang for a long time before Tom answered. Bonjour. Tom. Tom, I know who they were from. Où est la Tom? Je suis un petit pois. C'est va? Tom, shut the fuck up. Listen. Bon. Tom! Sorry, sorry. <laughs> what? <laughs> what is it? Those flowers? I know who they were from. I think I'm being fucking stalked, Tom. Shit. What? Really? Tom said, his tone dropping along with a faux French. I'm scared. Laura said. I'm fucking shitting myself. Like... He's following me, man. What should I do? Police? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hang on, hang on. Who is it? What's going on? Where are you now? You remember, like, years ago, a few years ago, I went on that date with that guy who took a lunge at me. The scary one, James. Yeah? It's him. I just saw him standing across the way near work, just staring at me. She felt sick now. She could feel her arms shaking, the phone rattling against her ear. And the flowers. JL. Can you get out of work? I need to sack it off and go somewhere safe. Are you sure it's him? Is he still there? Positive, she said. Her mind had surfaced his face and found a match. She remembered his round glasses and dark curly hair, his high cheekbones and the black pits surrounding his eyes. I'm certain. He's gone now, but I'm certain. Tom, can you get the afternoon off, please? Okay. Tom said. Okay, okay. I'll say something's come up. Where do you want to meet? Somewhere public, somewhere safe. Okay? Okay. You too. Bye. She put the phone in her bag and scanned back to where James had been standing. Had he definitely gone? Or had he just repositioned to get a better, more concealed view? She didn't want to risk him following her home but didn't know what she could do to stop that from happening. So she ran. After surveying every exit for a good few minutes and trying to look as casual as possible while doing so, she chose a moment when things were particularly busy, then stood from the bench and ran as fast as she could. She flew free of the park, rounded the corner, crossed the busy main road by vaulting between cars and pelted into the entrance to Holborn tube station. She slithered through the barriers before they could open more than an inch sprinted down the stairs and managed to jump onto a sweaty, eastbound train just as the doors were closing. Panting and panicking 
and exhausted, she took a seat amongst the businessmen and the schoolchildren, put her head in her hands, and began to sob from the fear. Saturday, September 16th, 1941. The noise, the noise of it was horrendous. I cannot tell you what went wrong with the plane, but that on our return leg we were forced to make the most ungraceful of crash landings. And all I can think about still is that I guessed it would happen. How? How did I have it in my bones that we'd hit the dirt? Is there some part of the brain developed to sense calamity ahead of time? I wonder. But oh, the noise. And oh, my nose. For I think it has split open widely and right down the middle. So what indeed happened? What happened was that the plane began to roar and choke. And then a bloody great fire ripped open the right engine in a piercing flash which tore the night apart like a hundred camera bulbs. The Valencia is an old noisy piece of shit to fly, we know that. But this was something else. The sound of it rang bells in my ears, violent screams, as the fuselage flapped in on itself. And then we began our descent, though I cannot claim it to be controlled. Hollis became torpid. He was motionless as we fell, except for uttering prayers and mumbling under his breath. I swear I could see him smile at me. The ground rushed towards us quicker than I thought possible, though I couldn't see it for the fire to my right and the darkness in front. And then we hit the dirt. The earth met us with a deafening punch, knocking the wind from me and the bones apart in my nose. And I remember little else apart from the stupendous bang of it. It was obvious to me that we'd die. And yet, here I am, writing this, alive, and wondering still how it is that I knew it would happen, why I was so unsurprised by the whole thing. This is such a strange war, full of strange occurrences and alien feelings. I have yet to meet a man who seems sure of what we're up to, even in the senior ranks. Yet I was. I was certain of this. And, well, anyway, clearly some hours passed before I came to, since the night was giving way to morning. Somehow the plane had stayed together enough in its destruction to shield the tank from the flames, as she's not yet exploded on us, though I ached and heard enough on waking to wish she had. The blood from my nose was on my teeth and tongue, bitter and metallic. All I could feel was, is, a general white pain from my eye sockets to my chin. My chest also feels tight, as though a rib has all but cracked, maybe shifted or bent inside. I cannot pull in enough air. And Hollis? 
Alive. Though barely. He's in a bad way, truth be told. A poor shadow of a man. He's all twisted below the waist. Legs in the wrong directions. I won't have helped there, of course, since I had to pull him sharply from the Valencia by the torso, yanking him free and out onto the cold sand. I'm sure I heard further cracks occur within him as this happened, so I may well have killed him in the long run. At the time it seemed better than waiting for some part of the thing to catch light on some other. But despite all that activity, he didn't stir. Won't stir. He's still breathing, but I've no idea if he'll make it, or if he does, whether he'll even be himself. There's what I think is a large bruise on the side of his face, so there's every chance he suffered a mighty blow to the head as we hit the ground. We're now some twenty feet from the wreckage as I write this, and no nothing of any note has happened for the last few hours, save for the increasing light building in the horizon. It's beautiful, actually. The stars fizzling out like champagne bubbles, the bluish indigo of day eating each one as it encroaches across the darkness. If the plane doesn't ignite in the next short while, I'll drag Hollis back to it. We'll need its shade if we're to survive the day. But for now, it's almost peaceful. That is, it would be if I could cease the ringing in my ears and feel anything but this endless, broad stinging across my face. When I was a young boy, my father would beat me with the buckle of his belt. He'd do it when I was bad, and he'd do it when I was good, and he'd do it sometimes for no other reason than that I happened to be in the same room as him. That belt buckle would leave marks on my face so deep that they'd still be there by the next time he came to beat me with it. And I remember thinking, nothing on earth could hurt a man as much as that damned buckle hurt me. I was wrong. I'd take that buckle now over this. I'd take a few lashings in favor of whatever's happened to the middle of my face. I can tell it's no good. I can tell. At any rate, here I lie in the Libyan desert at dawn. Like a stupid beached fish with an exploded visage. And still, I can't explain how I knew it would happen. The briefest of updates before all this exhaustion gets the better of me. It's now almost midday, and I'm pleased to say Hollis woke, albeit briefly, and was lucid, which says to me that he may yet make it should we ever find our way out of the middle of nowhere. Though perhaps pleased is the wrong word. I was pulling him back towards the plane when he started to murmur, so I hurried and propped him up against the fuselage, sitting there with his broken legs outstretched. And what was funny, for want of a better word, is that he awoke without a scream or a yelp or a howl over the agony of what has clearly happened to his body. He simply stirred and began to weep. Logan, he said, crying. Logan, I am supposed to be dead. I began to joke that we both ought to be, 
what with the mess we got ourselves into, and he cut me off as I went. No, I'm supposed to be dead, he said. Logan, I want you to shoot me. Shoot me, Logan. He repeated that several times, so that I might never forget the desperation of it. Shoot me, Logan. Shoot me. Shoot me, Logan. Shoot me. And then he passed out once more. Truthfully, I do not know what to do with that. All I can do is chalk it up to the mania which flows with such tremendous pain. Either way, I've taken shelter against the opposing side of the Valencia. Underneath what remains of the wing, just as the sun is rising. I'll stop writing now, I think. I simply have to get some sleep. I simply must stop pondering on how I knew this would happen. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Are you sure about this? Laura asked. It was Saturday afternoon, a week from when she had received James's flowers, and she was at home, 
cradling a cup of tea between her hands as though it were the answer to all her ills. The flowers had since been ceremoniously thrown in the bin, the vase put back in the cupboard out of sight. She looked over and saw one of the leaves dried and creased on the floor next to the table where they'd been. She fixated on it as Tom stood to answer the door, imagining that the dead leaf might transform into something sentient and slither away back to James. Yeah, said Tom, walking towards the hall. Yeah, it'll be cool. He took the chain from the door and opened it, revealing a woman in her sixties, with thick silver hair and profound smoke wrinkles driving towards her mouth like the strands of a river delta. She peered at him from behind dark sunglasses, ran a hand backwards through her mane and said, Thomas Ray, as if she were telling him rather than asking. Yes, yes, you must be Maggie. Must I now? She said, and began to walk towards him with intentions of passing through. Tom was forced to press his back against the hallway door to let her by, and by the time he'd peeled himself free and shut the door, Maggie had already shown herself to the living room and sat down in the armchair opposing Laura. She took a dictaphone from the bag in her lap and placed it on the coffee table, adjusting it just so, making sure it lined up perfectly with the corner of the glass, and pressed record. So, Laura, Thomas, how can I help them? Uh, oh, right. Laura stuttered, not sure if she particularly wanted to be recorded, but noting that she didn't feel particularly in charge of what was happening either way. Well, I mean, thanks for coming over. Thomas called me because he knows someone who once employed me to follow their husband, which I did, though I'd recommend that in some instances ignorance is bliss, you understand. In any case, when I do this sort of thing, I do it very quickly. Maggie pulled the sunglasses from her face, revealing one green eye and one smeared in the cloud of a cataract. It seemed to move in swirls across the pupil. And to do it quickly, I like to engage in less small talk than you're probably used to. Uh-oh, said Laura. Shit, sorry, right. I do finding people, following people, affairs, blackmail, foiling, and the odd murder. So, which is it? Finding someone, said Laura. And following them, said Tom. To what end? Maggie asked, and was met with silence. For what purpose? I'm being stalked, Laura said. I'm being stalked by a guy I went on a date with, just one date with, in like, 90-fucking-nine. He started following me, and I want you to build a case on him so I can go to the police with some hard evidence. Maggie leaned back in the armchair and pulled a cigarette from her inside pocket. She put it in her mouth and patted herself down for a lighter. Oh, uh, you can't smoke in here, said Tom, who was leaning against the wall with his thumbnail in his mouth. We only rent the place. Maggie shot him a fierce look, took the cigarette slowly from her lips and said, Yes, well, you can tell. You'd not have this horrible Swedish Lego furniture otherwise. She ran the ball of her hand across the armrest, rubbing against the faux leather so that it elicited a rumbling squeak. Then, for a while, nobody spoke. Laura, who was more than taken aback by the abrasive behaviour of this woman, a woman who was supposed to be vying for her business, felt ready to either burst into tears or break into a scream. Eventually, Maggie sighed. All right. Say I find this chap. 
get some evidence of him having followed you. What then? She put the cigarette back in her mouth and pretended to take a drag. Then we go to the police. Tom and I. Why not now? Laura and Tom looked at one another. We already did, said Tom. We went early in the week, but they didn't. They weren't. They didn't believe me, said Laura, tears forming. They said that they could only look into it if it persisted beyond what they called a single incident and a coincidence. They said that I was overreacting for having gone down there as if I'm supposed to wait till I'm fucking raped or something. She placed her head in her hands and took a deep breath in. Tom moved from the wall to be with his sister, sitting down next to her and lacing an arm across her shoulder. He looked up at Maggie expectantly. I'll need £35 per hour plus VAT. 45 if it's at night. What? said Laura, raising her head. Over how many hours? As long as it takes. Though I do work very quickly, as I mentioned. Fucking hell, we can't afford that. I can't afford that, Tom. Laura's heart rose to her throat, sticking against her esophagus. Then you can't afford me, I'm afraid, Maggie said, and stood to walk to the door. Laura thought back to her hour spent in the police station a few days prior. She thought back to the constable looking her up and down, ankles to tits, trying to figure out which bit of her he could latch victim-blaming onto. He had thought it was her fault somehow, that she must have led the guy on. Or it was only a tiny bit of harmless flattery, only some flowers. She probably only thought she'd seen him in the park, an exaggeration. The helplessness of it made the pit of her stomach pull in on itself. Please, she said, not getting up. Please, I'm scared. I'm scared of this man. Then, said Maggie, scooping up her dictaphone and popping it and the loose cigarette into her bag. I'm afraid you'll just have to get someone else to find... What was the name? James. Laura whispered. James Logan. Tom hung his head. It had been his idea for Laura to go on the date in the first place. He remembered pressuring her into it, goading her about going to yet another slew of weddings with him, her brother, as her plus one. He'd put her in this situation, and now real danger had come from it. Maggie, who had started to make her exit, stopped in her tracks upon hearing the name. She was torpid in the middle of the living room, failing to calm her now racing mind. James Logan. Was it the same James Logan? It must have been. Laura Ray must have been the girl on the first date. But how had this happened? How had this all come together like this? It seemed too easy, though, with the past three years having clouded her mind to such an extent, easy was oversimplifying things. It was confusing and elaborate, messy, and she expected nothing less from a Logan. She put her sunglasses back on as a stalling tactic and searched the recesses of her subconscious for a way to change her mind without sounding desperate to do so. She had to take this case on. She had to do it herself. Anyone else might chase Mr. Logan off, and she had too many questions for him to let that happen. I will do it for ten, she said, not turning back around. Because I can tell how alarmed you are. And because I have been in a similar situation myself, I will take this case for ten pounds per hour. She had no idea where this lie came from, but it sounded good enough. And then she moved hurriedly to the door and left, 
closing it behind her before either Laura or Tom could argue, or negotiate, or agree, or even stand up. It was, Laura thought, one of the strangest encounters she had ever had, and something about the way the woman had changed her mind felt wrong. What just happened? Tom did not reply, inwardly worried about whatever can of worms he'd just unleashed. An hour later, three miles away in a side street off of the Archway Road in Highgate, James Logan was sitting on the Chesterfield sofa in his old flat. He was sitting in silence, looking straight ahead, straight through the wall into an imaginary point several million miles beyond. He was silently berating himself for having come back, at having seen Laura, at having not seen her for long enough. Last week they were supposed to have gotten married. They would be in St. Lucia now. He would be drunk. He looked at his watch, forgetting that it had stopped three years prior, and wondered about when he should leave to go back up north. He couldn't be in this room any more. He couldn't stand the sight of his belongings because they reminded him too much of himself and too little of Laura. Everything there was fixed in 1999, in his long-gone bachelor days. There was a framed Scarface movie poster on the wall, which was supposed to have been replaced by a picture of a man walking his dog along Brighton Beach. It made him feel sick. But the smell made him feel worse. It permeated the entire floor, wrapping around his skin and drifting down his throat to cause the occasional wretch. He had to leave. He had to get away again. But then that would mean no more Laura. No more of his watching her from across the road and through windows, what are you doing, James? He thought. Why don't you just die? Beyond the living room and across the corridor was a door. He'd put bin liners across the frame. A chair leaned against the bump in the lining where the handle was. He needed to get away from that fucking room. It was a time bomb on his conscience. And so that's what he would do. A week here had been a week too long. He placed a few of his old things in a bag, some pads and pens, some of his clothes that still fit around his growing paunch, and some of the letters he'd received since the last time he'd been in the house. Then he donned his jacket and stole himself to leave. He dipped his head and squeezed his eyes shut as he passed the boarded-up door, trying not to acknowledge there was anything wrong. Then something unexpected happened. James froze. Terror raced through him. Had... Had the boarded-up door just knocked? Was that possible? Trembles took him by the hands and in the knees. James? Came a voice from downstairs. No. No, the knocking was at the front door. It was heavy and beneath him and definitely not coming from the door adjacent to the living room. His veins flooded with relief so viscous that it swayed him left and right. Then a different kind of fear arrived. Who was it at the door? And how did they know his name? He stood, very, 
desperately still, still enough that he could feel his heart pounding frantically against his ribs, and waited. James Logan? James, if you're in there, can you answer the door? My name's Maggie. I need to ask you some very important questions. James, I know you're home. I need to speak to you. About your father. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.